If you would, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We're actually going to be starting with the uh, last verse of chapter 6. That's where uh, Dr. Weldon left off last week, and we'll be continuing our study here uh, this morning. Uh, But it's an important verse at the end of chapter 12, for it's a turning point that we've come to in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the, the first half kind of ends with the seventh and final refrain of all is vanity and all is chasing after the wind. And then we start up in the 612 with the, the uh, preacher asking a couple questions. He's asking basically, who knows what is best for us and who knows what's in store for us? That being said, let's take a look at God's holy word this morning. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. I actually first did most of the work on this sermon on Monday. And then Monday night... I got the phone call about Simi Goodwin. And after processing the news for a little bit, my thoughts raced back to our passage this morning. And I thought to myself, I might need to preach something different. I mean, how do I stand in front of this congregation on this week and say, the day of death is better than the day of birth? But... uh, One of the good parts of systematic expository preaching is that you take the text that's in front of you and you preach it, no matter how afraid you might be at the time. So let's ask the Lord's prayer, or let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we come this morning and we ask you to show us glorious truth in this portion of your holy gospel. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Dr. Weldon has worked us through this book so far, we've seen that the author of Ecclesiastes looks squarely in the face of life apart from God and acknowledges that it's empty, that it's vain, that it's meaningless, that it's futile, that it's fleeting, and it is without any substance or without any satisfaction, the life apart from God. Now, as we enter the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes, it will be important that we always keep those two questions that are asked in 6.12 in mind, for they can anchor the second half of the book. We've seen up to this point the stark reality of what life is like apart from God. In the first several chapters, we saw several different escape routes that people would try to use to, to justify living life apart from God. They'd try philosophy. They'd try to philosophize themselves out of the conundrum. They would try wealth. They would try affluence as a way to try to appease themselves. They would look at many different ways. And everywhere that they look, they would always come up short. They would throw themselves into their vocation and their work or find some big task. And yet at the end, it was still emptiness. In Ecclesiastes chapter 6 that we looked at last week, uh, the, the preacher went on a, a, a big overview of what was going on. He speaks of wealth. He speaks of family. He speaks of a very large family. He speaks of long life. He speaks of work again. He speaks about our own words or what we think sometimes is wisdom. And all these ways that people attempt to fill the void in their life apart from God. Now, he was saying this not just because he was a wise man, but he was saying it because he had these experiences. When it comes to vocation, if anybody was going to be satisfied in vocation, it would have been him. For he had many, many things to do, and yet he said it was empty. When it came to wealth, nobody's wealth matched his. And so at the end of the day, he said, Wealth, apart from God, does you no good. When it comes to family, if anybody could appreciate that, that family would try to fill some sort of void in life, he would have. He had a hundred children, and yet, still, he ended up saying it was empty. Everything he tried came up empty. In fact, throughout uh, the entire uh, first six chapters of Ecclesiastes. It's only been one time so far in the book that he's explained from a positive standpoint what truly supplies meaning in this life. And he's located the meaning in this life to be found in the meaning of the providences of God and our acknowledgement of the providences of God. And that's why the questions in 6.12 are so important. There are, they are the questions all of us ask from time to time. For the preacher asked the questions, who knows what is best for us? And who knows what's in store for us? The answer is Jesus. Jesus knows what is best for us. And Jesus knows 
what is in store for us. So today we will see why that should really make a difference in our lives. Our embracing the reality of God's providence is key to living wisely in this life, to being wise in this life, and to experience real meaning in this life. The meta-narrative that, that runs throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and particularly through our text this morning, is are you going to live the life of a wise person or the life of a fool? The fool tries to live apart from God. The wise live their lives in Jesus. Beginning in chapter 7, we take a close look at, at what is wisdom. For us to understand wisdom, we must understand it in terms of one of the ultimate questions that we face in life. How do we live wise lives? There's, there's a Latin phrase that probably catches it best. It's quorum deo. Quorum deo captures the essence of what the Christian life is about. The phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or in the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we're doing, and wherever we're doing it, that we're doing it under the, 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 the watchful eye of God. God is omnipresent. There's no place so remote that we can escape his holy gaze. To be aware of the presence of God is to be acutely aware of the sovereignty of God. We must understand that God is God and that he indeed is sovereign. As Johnny just saying that he alone is worthy to sit on the throne of the universe. It's a life of wholeness that finds its unity and its coherency in the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. A fragmented life is a life of disillusion. It's marked by inconsistency and disharmony and confusion and conflict and, dare I even say, chaos. And, and the Christian who tries to compartmentalize their life as religious and non-religious fails in understanding quorum Deo. For when you try to separate religion from non-religion, all you've done is committed sacrilege. Quorum Deo is a call for us to live every moment in the face of God and a call for us to embrace all, all of God's providences that come our way. As we start into the first 12 verses of chapter 7, the, the preacher here makes a shift in the, the writing that he's done so far in this book. He goes from, from writing observations about life to, to giving us a number of pithy little proverbs uh, to, to take a look at. Some of these proverbs uh, on the surface might seem a bit odd and maybe even pessimistic. In the end, however, the preacher will show us that the wisdom of God far surpasses the, the, the wisdom of man and, and certainly our folly. 
what we what we will ultimately see in these proverbs is that we should stri- strive to have the mind of Jesus Christ. That's where real wisdom is found. Colossians 2:3 tells us that Christ is real wisdom and therefore the wisdom of Christ it's like a treasure for us. So that's what we need to be striving for. Let's look at the first six verses here of chapter 7. Here the the preacher asks us to meditate on the potential instructiveness of suffering and of death. In other words, he says that death and sorrow and grief, and interesting enough, mixed in with humor, will show us how to live wise or how to live foolishly. In verse 1, he says something fairly strange. He says, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now, those two things may seem like they have absolutely nothing to do with each other, but but actually they are parallel. They're making a comparison. He's saying, just as a good name is better than ointment, so also is the day of one's death better than the day of one's birth. Now, that might not help explain that particular verse to you, it's, it still seems somewhat cryptic when you first look at it. What he's saying is a funeral is better than a birthday. Well, why is a death day better than a birthday? Well, the answer is in the context of everything else we're going to be looking here at here in the first six verses, but it's fairly obvious. The funeral, he is saying, poses and reveals ultimate questions and ultimate issues and ultimate answers about this life. I remember it like if it was yesterday, but it was actually some 12 years ago. I was in seminary, and I was invited to have lunch with some of the pastors in, in the area. And we, they had lunch once, once a month, and they got together, and they shared their victories and their struggles and their uh, their concerns, and, and this one day as we were eating lunch, one of the pastors was talking about a lot of apathy that was going on in his church. And it was really rather depressing to hear it. And then one of the founding fathers in, in our denomination looked at him and he said, you know, Alan, what you need, you need a good funeral in your church, preferably that of maybe one of your prominent members. Now, I was taken back. But all the other pastors, they just kind of shook in agreement, their heads in agreement. They understood what this man was saying. They understood what Ecclesiastes 7 was saying. They understood that at a funeral, people are, more, are far more challenged and take time to reflect than at a party. There's a story about a man uh, who lived a very immoral life, and his wife came to the preacher the day before his funeral and said, now preacher, everybody in town knows what kind of man my husband was. Don't you go tomorrow and try to preach him into heaven. You preach the gospel tomorrow. So the next day at the funeral, everybody's kind of anxious to see what the pastor is going to do. And the pastor stood up in the pulpit and looked down at the casket Oh, Joe, you're in hell now. 
And with that, a loud amen came out of the front row from his wife. And once again, the man's life was revealed in his death. And that's what we're learning here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, is that ultimate questions are answered at the time of death. That's why you always hear the gospel preached at every funeral here at St. Andrews, because it's a time when people take time to reflect on life and to reflect on their own day of death. Look at verse 2. He goes on to say, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting. There's another strange quotation, isn't it? It's better to go to someone's house after the funeral service than go to a party? Well, why? Well, once again, he tells you here because it's the end of every man, and the living takes that to heart. Death brings the wise to think about life, to take stock of their own end, and take count of their own priorities. Because every funeral should anticipate our own. So the wise person goes to the house of the morning while the fool only thinks about parties. Friends, I've got news for you. If the Lord tarries, a hundred years from now, everyone in this room will be dead. And here, the preacher is telling us that we need to think about that. He goes on to say in verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter. When a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The preacher is saying that sorrow, even mourning, is better than empty laughter. There are those that laugh quickly and loudly, but more often than not, their laughter is, is empty. He says sorrow is better than that kind of empty laughter. And, behind, and indeed, behind Many sad faces are fundamentally joyful, happy, and content people. Just because the face is a face of sorrow in the time of the morning doesn't mean that a person doesn't have real joy and real hope in Jesus Christ. That uh, great theologian, Billy Joel, one time sang the song... Only the good die young. And in there he would he's saying that he'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. And this is exactly what the, the preacher here is calling foolishness. The, the, the preacher would say, I'd rather cry with the saints than laugh foolishly with the sinners. The saints are wise, and behind the sad faces of the saints is, in fact, a heart that's profoundly more happy and more joyful in Jesus than any foolish heart. The theme is continued into verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. In other words, he says that the wise are thinking about going to comfort someone in their time of mourning and loss, while fools are only thinking about going to parties. The wise person is ready to comfort in their time of mourning, 
while the fool avoids this and thinks only of trying to get away from those type of thoughts and only enjoying empty partying. Again, as we look at verse 5, this one may seem a bit out of place. It says, it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Here we learn from the preacher that it would be better to hear the, and experience the pleasant or not so pleasant rebuke of a wise person than it would be to join in the singing and laughter of fools. Well, why is that? Well, it tells us in verse 6, for the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. Just like a thorn bush lights quickly and burns brightly and crackles loudly, it also burns out very quickly. So a fool's laugh loudly and quickly and soon burns out. The wise man's rebuke serves a much greater end and has a much more lasting impact than that of the fool. I know a guy about my age who told me a couple years ago that he had never been to a funeral, that he didn't want anything to do with that, that he found death to be creepy. That's, a, that's real sad. You know, what do these verses say about that? They say that death, sorrow, grief, and empty laughter have a way of revealing wisdom and folly. If you're one that never pauses to think about death or you're constantly trying to run away from looking at the hard issues that death brings, if you're one that would rather have the empty laughter than the contented sorrow, then I hate to tell you, but the heart of a fool has been revealed. And the fool is the one who attempts to live life under the sun apart from God, to find some sort of meaning and some sort of pleasure and some sort of satisfaction apart from the living God. Look again with me at verses 7 through 10. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. The the preacher here continues to think about the trials of life in these verses. He points out the dangers of compromise and impatience and anger and even discontent. And once again, he says, the various trials of life in this fallen world reveal the heart of either either wisdom or of folly. Oppression, he says, makes a wise man mad and bribe, and a bribe would corrupt his heart. So how does a wise man respond to oppression? Not with just a shrug but with real indignation, with real frustration to the point of being driven crazy. He can't be satisfied and turn a blind eye to it. He also says that that a bribe corrupts the heart. These trials cannot be ignored by the wise man. In verse 8, we learn the end of a matter is better than the beginning. Well, why is that? 
Well, because often at the end of a matter, that's when we see how God has worked. We can't always see that in the beginning of a matter. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit, we're told. Here he's reminding us of the dangers of impatience. And he's saying that impatience is actually a reflection of being prideful. You get that? When we are impatient, what we're saying is that our time, our schedule, our plan is more important than anything or anyone else. Impatience is, is nothing else but pride being manifested in our lives. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Is there an angry heart in you? If there is, it's a mark of foolishness. Verse 10 says, don't say why is that that the former days were better than these. How often have you said that? Oh, how long for the good old days. Oh, I wish things were back like they used to be. Oh, for those times gone by. He says that's not from wisdom that you think about those things. All of these attitudes to certain situations in our life, again, they reveal wisdom or folly in our hearts. Does oppression and bribery, do, do they vex you? Do you really get bent out of shape when you see real oppression going on? If so, that's good. That shows that God has implanted a wise heart in you. Or are you indifferent to that? If you are, then that's bad. That reveals foolishness of a heart. Are you patient? Are you able to deal with anger? This reveals to either wisdom or, or foolishness? Are you always looking to the, to the days gone by as being the best days? If you are, that's, that's a sign of a foolish heart. A wise heart says, I want to serve God today and tomorrow and forever, no matter what has gone on in the past. All these things, again, they reveal wisdom or folly. And again, folly is living apart from God. Finally, in verses 11 and 12, we see the necessity of wisdom. Here the preacher celebrates the real value that wisdom has for us. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who have it. His point is that, that wisdom, it's even better than money. Now, money can provide some sort of protection, and, and, and that's, that's great. But he says that wisdom, real wisdom, can help you live. Wisdom can provide for you in a way that money can never provide. Wisdom is more important to live in this world properly than money. As God's people, we need to understand that. We need to demonstrate that to the rest of the world. Wisdom is more important to live in this world properly than money. Throughout this passage, that the preacher is reminding us the need for us to have wisdom, the need to walk in the way of the Lord, to believe what God is saying 
in his very word, to look at life uh, from God's perspective, to depend on what God has told us about in this life and in order to, to really understand how to make sense of this life. Friends, if, if we attempt to make sense of this light apart from God and apart from his word and apart from the way of the Lord, then I'll tell you, this life, it will never make sense. And so wisdom is necessary and it preserves the life of one who possesses it. And true wisdom is found in Jesus alone. To live any other way, it's also vanity, and it is chasing after the wind. So we're left at the end to decide, are we going to be fools, or are we going to be wise? And what's the attraction of the foolish life anyway? What is it? Well, the attraction is this. When we, when we chase after the foolish life, that's when we think that maybe we can actually be in control, that maybe we're actually the ones that are sovereign, and that we can actually make the world go the way that we want it to go. But you and I know that that's not true. Not a single one of us would have brought the providences in our life that have come into our life this week if we were the sovereigns. So we know that God alone is sovereign. We gain wisdom when we let go of wanting to be in control and when we cling to Jesus Christ. You know, we never would have been wise enough to leave our sinful, dead hearts to follow God if Christ had not regenerated our hearts. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the same Christ who redeems, transforms, and regenerates us out of our state of sin and misery is trustworthy to follow all of the days of our life. Living in Christ, that's where real wisdom is found. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is always good. It's always timely. It's always right on the mark. Father, I pray for every person in this word, in this room that we would be men and women of your word, that we would soak it up and that it would flow out of our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women that see you as our sovereign God and trust you and that we follow you all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.